Welcome to the 32nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Brian DeLue, author of the literary thriller, In This Way I Was Saved. And before we jump into the podcast interview, I just wanted to take a moment and let you know about something that I think you would be interested in. I recently started a email newsletter focused on books and reading called To Be Read. It's designed to be read in five minutes or less, and it's delivered three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. It features a new book or an old book, a book-related website or podcast, and the focus is completely on subjects of books and reading. So again, the e-newsletter is called To Be Read, and you can subscribe today for free, of course, at tobereadbooks.com, www.tobereadbooks.com. Hope you enjoy it. Now stay tuned for my interview with Brian DeLue. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I, I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Tonight, my guest is Brian DeLue, author of the book, In This Way I Was Saved, a literary suspenseful novel. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard of your novel, In This Way I Was Saved, can you describe a little bit about it? Uh, sure. At, at its heart, it's the story of a boy named Luke Nightingale uh, and his friend Daniel. Um, the story is told from Daniel's point of view, and the central mystery and tension in the book is figuring out who or what Daniel is. Um, is he Luke's imaginary friend? Is he a symptom of Luke's mental illness? Uh, or is he more of a ghost-like figure? And uh, the plot follows Luke as he grows up, and as he and Daniel struggle for control of his life. And all the while, throughout the plot, I'm, I'm playing with the line between the supernatural uh, and the psychological understandings of Daniel's character. Um, and that's sort of what lies behind all of the struggle between the two of them throughout the novel. Great. It, it was, was it your intention to leave it to the reader to decide whether or not Daniel was a real person or a figment of Luke's imagination, or do you feel that a close reading of the novel will will reveal the truth? At different stages of the novel, you're meant to think different things. So, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to give too much away. Um, sure. I think early on, early on, you think he's a normal friend, and I'm not giving too much away, I think, by saying that your next interpretation is that he's a child's imaginary friend, which is a fairly normal thing for a child to have. Um, after that point, I, I really did want the reader to make up his, be able to make up his own mind. Um, I think there are more clues for a certain one interpretation over another, but uh, I don't want to say what that is exactly. And, you know, I, I do think that there are a couple interpretations at the ending, especially. I, I like to leave things a little open-ended. Um, I like novels that are a little ambiguous without being you know, deliberately confusing, but uh, I, I did want the reader to be able to make his own, make his own choice about that. And so have you made a choice yourself, but obviously you're not comfortable saying. <laughs> I have, I have, <laughs> but I don't want to say, I don't okay. I, I do want to leave it. I don't want to say until people, until people read it, you know? Sure. Sure. I understand. Great. 
as a, as an editor at Tin House Magazine, I assume that you read short story submissions to the magazine. How do you feel that reading those stories, maybe seeing mistakes that some of the writers are making, has impacted your own writing? Um, you know, it, it has to, to an extent. It, it's a very different part of, of the brain, I think, editing versus versus writing. And I try and keep the two as separate as I can. Um, that's, that's not always possible, of course. But um, I guess it, it, it really has... Help me see that you need to, you do need to hook people very early. Um, I don't mean you necessarily have to have, you know, the best knock it out of the park first line of all time. It doesn't need to shock the reader necessarily. But when you're reading, gosh, we read, you know, hundreds of submissions a week, um, you really do need to establish your, your tone and your voice at the very beginning. And, and I was very conscious of that in this novel too. Um, like I said, it's told through Daniel's voice and, I really wanted his voice to be immediate from the first page, you know, and I think that did come from reading a lot of submissions and, you know, you read maybe more novice writers, newer writers kind of stumbling to the first few pages and, and the story does eventually find its legs, but it, it's a little too late at that point. So it's not necessarily about a wham-bam plot point, you know, in the first in the first paragraph, but it's about establishing uh, an authorial tone or voice that's engaging and, and that makes you want to keep reading. So I think that's the main thing I probably learned um, from from both negative and positive examples. What's it like when you're when you're reading hundreds of submissions, but you do find that that submission that has that arthurial voice that you mentioned from from the first line or first paragraph? Really, really exciting, to be honest. <laughs> you know, that's why that's why we do it. Um, you know, actually, I, I do read, I read a lot of things that are extremely polished, um, that have clearly been worked over many times, and just, and just lack of spark. I mean, that's sort of the main thing. We're not getting things that are, that are, that are terrible by any means, but we're getting a lot of things that are totally fine, <laughs> but just not, they lack some, they lack heart, they lack spark. I don't know what the right word, they lack an animating spirit, I guess. You know, I don't know. There's not a, a real great term for it, but when you see that, you know, you usually see it on the first page or two, and, it, and it's a really exciting thing for all of us as editors, I think. Sure. Since we, since I did mention your your work at Tin House Magazine, and for those who who may not know, the 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 magazine has had stories anthologized in the Best American Short Stories of the Year's annual anthology. Uh, um, with with the advent of of ebooks and digital publishing, do you think there will be a resurgence in short stories now that people are reading in more bite sized chunks on their cell phones or or other mobile devices? And I wonder too if you if you have given much thought that you know if there were a new short story magazine to start next week, next month, or next year, do you think that? Most of those new magazines are going to be moving on to you know ebook platforms of one way or the other, whether it's the iPad or yeah, something else. It's it's such a it's such a difficult question to answer. Um, it certainly would seem to make more sense that people have short, maybe less time to read that they would gravitate towards short stories. I don't know if that's really been borne out, um, you know, in any sort of quantifiable way yet. In in terms of there are new magazines starting all the time, which is amazing to me. And, and it's great, you know, that people have 
the confidence to do that. And I think some of them are great. Electric Literature is one that started last year that's that's really great. And they they do have a print version, but they also have a really high-quality um, digital version. And we're actually right in the middle of figuring out how we want to do that. Um, it's really not settled yet. We're, we're mm-hmm. definitely going to enter into it. Um, we're literally, you're literally talking to me right in the middle of our deliberations about how to go about <laughs> that. So it's absolutely something that's on our minds a lot. Um, and, you know, we want people to be able to read our magazine and I want people to be able to read my book um, through any sort of medium that, that, that they would like, to, that they want to, you know. I mean, there's no, I don't want to restrict we don't want to restrict anybody by only being print, nor do we want to restrict people. I mean, I, I still read physical paper books, and I think I, I kind of always will, but maybe sort of just on the cusp of the last generation that, that has that idea. And, but, you know, you want your stories and we, the stories that we edit and, and the novels that I write, I want them to be available to as many people as possible in as many forms as possible. So, you know, it's it's definitely something that we think about at the magazine a lot. I think about it as a writer a lot. A lot. I don't know if it necessarily um, has an impact on, you know, what kind of stories we select or what kind of books I write. That may come later. It hasn't yet. For me, it's just, okay, how do we make sure that the, the widest um, amount, of, you know, the widest amount of people are able to access this? And, and I wish I had a a simpler answer to how we're going to go about doing that, but we don't, we don't know yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. Right. What's that? I said, stay tuned. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, who are some of the writers that you're currently enjoying reading, whether it's short um, stories or novels? Gosh, in terms of newer writers, um, we're running an excerpt uh, in our winter issue from somebody named Benjamin Percy, who had um, a short story collection that came out a couple of years ago called Refresh, Refresh. Um, which I kind of missed when it came out. And his novel, Wilding, is coming out this month. And we uh, excerpted something that's coming out in our, in our, in our uh, or that just came out, sorry, in our fall issue. And I've read most of the novel now. I'm, I'm working my way through it right now. It, it's phenomenal. Um, it's a really good, suspenseful, smart, dark story set in, uh, in central and eastern Oregon. Um, He's a really good writer, somebody to watch, I think. Um, another book, I, I just read Richard Price's Lush Life, which as a native New Yorker, and I, you know, I live very near the area that book's about, that that book was phenomenal. Um, Sam Lipsight's The Ask was something I just read, which is maybe the funniest book I've read in the, you know, years. So there's just so much good stuff out there. That's the thing. I mean, working in publishing and being a writer, you're told over and over again how it's dying and how people are doing other things, but, you know, and, and don't really want to read anymore. But the quality of the books is there. I mean, I, I, I am as excited as not more excited about what I'm, what I'm reading this year, books that came out this year and last year than I can remember. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's a good thing. It is. It is. And I, I agree with you. I think that the, I think that sometimes the, discussion around the the reading formats whether it's on a, a screen or a a printed page i think sometimes there's this somewhat somewhat of a hysteria around the the format changing but the fact is there are still uh, good stories being told and being written and and it's true and and you know what interests me is that a lot of the hysteria is not coming from at least in my personal experience from writers um it's more coming from from uh, book publishers and booksellers and the media, which I th- which I think is is 
totally understandable. But but the writers I work with and the writers I'm friends with have faith that there there are readers, and and the question is just what they're going to be reading it on. And there's always going to be people who want to read good stories. So exactly, you know, kind of, a, kind of a reminds lot of the, me. So go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say it kind of reminds me of this anecdote of uh, by Stephen King after he wrote um, he wrote a very very early ebook. Now the the name of it's uh, escaping my my memory long before Kindle was on the scene, and he made the comment that when he was traveling and he would be in in um, uh, airports, he would always get approached by these guys. And this was during the whole kind of dot-com boom. And they were all asking him about his business model and how he's making money. And nobody asked him about the story. And he found that kind of uh, scary because he was making the point that what matters to him is the story, you know, the the form he can play with and and experiment with in terms of e-publishing. But it was the story that he cared about. Yeah, there may be a time when when the format, you know, really influences how people write, but or, or what they write. But that, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon, at least with what I've seen of, of e-readers and so forth. So, sure. We'll given <laughs> given your work as an editor and and your novel in this way, I was saved. When did you start uh, writing yourself and, and knowing that you wanted to be a writer? Was it something at a very early age that that you that you was, knew? Yeah, yeah. Well, that I that I knew I wanted to try. Uh, <laughs> the jury's still out of whether I can, you know, make it. But uh, I, you know, it's something I wanted to do since I was a kid. Um, well, when I was really young, I think I wanted to be a paleontologist and then a football player. But then by age nine, when it was clear that neither one of those things were going to happen, uh, <laughs> I, I really was. I wanted to be a writer, and I was very into um, science fiction and fantasy books growing up, and um, that's what got me most excited about writing. And then, uh, you know, I still read some of that, some of those books, but you know, my taste changed. But the idea of of trying to give other people this sort of immersive, really exhilarating experience that I had as a kid, and that I I still get when I read a good book, um, you know, that was that was the goal, um, and. You know, I put it aside. I worked in book publishing briefly after college, which I also liked a lot. Um, and, and I'm lucky enough to be able to continue to to sort of do that with Tin House in a slightly different way. But um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, ever you since work? I was a kid, I, oh, I worked at HarperCollins in in London, in England, HarperCollins UK. Um, just not for very long, for about a year and a half. And then I, before I, I got my came back to New York and, and got my MFA at the, at the new school and sort of said if I'm going to take a crack at this this writing thing I should do it now. Um, that was when I was about I guess 25 25 years old about 26 maybe. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, since since I was very young, I knew it was something I, I really really wanted to at least try. Great. With with who who are some of the the fantasy and science fiction authors that you're reading now? I'm reading now. I'm not so much uh, fantasy anymore. I guess more, more on the horror side of things. Sure. Because um, that was part of it too, actually. Like on the gothic side of things. Um, just going back and, and and reading a lot of the classics again too. Um, Shirley Jackson is somebody mm-hmm. I really really love. Uh, We've always lived in the castle. Was was a big influence on in this way. I was saved actually. That it, with that very um, extremely unreliable 
at least an amoral, if not immoral, narrator um, who somehow you just want to listen to more. It was very clever and and very witty, but also pretty pretty chilling. That was sort of a big influence on my narrator and my novel. Um, so that book and Haunting, uh, The Haunting of Hill House as well, some of her short stories, um, Rebecca uh, as well, that novel by... Uh, Du Maurier. Um, so uh, right now it's more of the gothic side of things um, rather than the sci-fi and, and sure. fantasy. It's, it's been a while since I've, I've read one of those. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's something I'm going to come back to for sure. It's just sure. there's so much to read, you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, actually, absolutely. just thinking of that, Brian Evanson as well, um, in terms of contemporary horror writers, is somebody who I think is really, really good. Um, his novel, The Open Curtain, uh, I, I really enjoyed. Somebody recommended that to me actually after they read mine. Um, what, what was the name of it? Like the Open Curtain. It, it's a phenomenal book. Um, I can see why they would have recommended it to me after reading my book, but to be totally honest, um, it'll be a while before I can write as really as he does. He's he's truly a great writer, um, and he has a story collection called Fugue State that's also very good. And he he and uh, Patrick McGraw, I think, are kind of the top two in terms of contemporary horror, the more literary side of horror, I think, for me at least. Sure. And, and who, is, who is the author of The Open Curtain? I didn't catch his name. Oh, Brian Evanson. Brian Evanson. Great. I'm curious, yeah. have, you ever, have you ever read a book called uh, Mysterious Skin by Scott Heim? No. Uh, I highly recommend it. Definitely very, very uh, highly recommend it. it. It's a novel. Mysterious in the, Skin. Mysterious Skin. It's a great title. <laughs> um, it's it's a novel, and there was also an independent movie made probably two or three years ago now, probably three years ago, if not if not longer, that, that was made from the book. Uh, definitely recommend it. The, the author's name is Scott Heim, Mysterious Skin. Okay. G given your I'll, given your I'll book given your book, I think you I think you would uh, enjoy it. Um, Great. I'll check it out. So. Um, with with your work as an editor at Tin House and the author of this book, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening? Any thoughts or suggestions on writing and pursuing publication? Um, you know, I'm going to say something that I think a lot of people say, but it, but it's you know it's absolutely true, which is just just to write every day as much as possible whenever you can. Uh, Having great ideas is obviously essential as well, but just so much of it is is the day to day sort of grind of sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, you know, putting it together and revising and revising. And it's just it takes a while to get used to the idea. I think for well, for me it did that you have to spend just just unbelievable amounts of time on something before you're going to be happy with it. And I, I think there are exceptions to that when people just strike gold really quickly. But but for me, it's um, it took a lot of getting used to the process of, of just getting up and doing it every day, whether you felt, you know, inspired or, or, or not. And, and, you know, that sort of growing to kind of love, <laughs> growing to love the work ethic, I guess, is, is a weird way of putting it and growing, growing to just um, growing into that, into that habit, um, I think is an important thing to, to sort of establish for yourself and, and, uh, it took me it took me a while to to sort of figure that out and but um that was that's all I would say just just to start writing as much as possible and to and to uh to obviously to read as much as possible too um and to 
I don't know. I, and other than that, I don't think there's a magic formula, you know. <laughs> those are the two main things. I think a lot of people out there, I think a lot of people look for the magic formula, but I, th- I think you're right is in, in learning to love the work ethic and, and the process of writing. So what's up so next for, for me, you? Such a, such a high, just one last thing about that. Such, sure. such a high percentage of what I write every day I discard. And you'd never find the like the, the one page out of 10 that you keep if you didn't write those 10. You know what I mean? So it's it's just instead of writing two terrible pages and, and giving up the day, you just sort of keep at it, keep at it. And, and often for me, it's like I it's like I waste six hours. Not waste, but I feel like I'm wasting six hours, and then suddenly in the last half hour I write the pages that I keep. That almost always happens. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, just, just keep grinding at it. <laughs> sure. What's up next for you? Do you have another novel or short story scheduled for publication? Uh, I don't have one scheduled for publication yet. I'm working on my second novel right now. I'm about halfway through it. Um, It's another New York story. You know, in this way, I would say it was very much set, uh, grounded in the the areas I know best in Manhattan, which are the Upper East and Upper West Sides and sort of the north side of Central Park in Manhattan. Uh, and this, this novel is set in a completely different part of New York, in Rockaway Beach in Queens, and then Roosevelt Island, which is a very strange, creepy place, a, a, a thin sliver of an island between Queens and Midtown Manhattan, which in the past has been sort of a, a kind of, it's been a, it had an insane asylum on it, it had a, a tuberculosis sanatorium on it. Um, it's a very strange place, and it currently has two hospitals on it, and a lot of the action in this novel is set uh, kind of in and around one of those hospitals in the medical black market. I'm familiar with Roosevelt Island. I, I lived in New York for eight or nine years, and I used to rollerblade on Roosevelt Island. It's a strange place, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah so... So it's 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 a kind of a mystery. This novel is maybe more of a traditional mystery in a way uh, than my first one. Um, but uh, yeah, it's coming along. So you know, there's no publication date uh, set yet. But you know, I, I think it will be done in about a, probably about a year. I hope a little less. Great. Speaking of New York and and books and stories and and talking about writers, I'm curious. Have you ever read anything by Colin Harrison? He has a book. Uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is called Manhattan Nocturne, uh, and he has several oh. others. Uh, again, highly recommended. He he writes what I would refer to as kind of literary crime novels, but most of them are set in New York. And and I know it's kind of a cliche, but I really feel like the the he captures the city, and the city is kind of a a character in his novels. So. That's are, one are I would they recommend. contemporary? Oh, contemporary, yeah, yeah. Contemporary. Yeah. I've, I've seen his books. I've never, I've never read one. I've definitely seen them around. I'll, I'll check them out. Yeah. So, uh, that's all the questions I had for you. Any anything that we didn't cover that you might want to mention or talk about? Um, not really. You know, it, it, I just, I, I urge people obviously to pick up the book, and it, it's a strange book to talk about because so much depends. Uh, on on these surprises and and you know I, I, it's a very hard book to detail the plot without giving it away, but um, you know I, I just I think if if uh, people pick it up they'll they'll be engaged and ho- I hope they'll be engaged, and um, I, I think uh, they'd like it. So great. I just well, want to thank again, you for having again, me on. sure. Again, I've been speaking with Brian Delu, author of In This Way I Was Saved, which is available in trade paperback now. 
To find out more about Brian, you can check out his website at briandelu.com, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.